for the last, I don't know, it seems like two years we've been in Colossians 3. Uh, the good news is we finished all the fun parts of Colossians, and we finished it last week by carefully peering at this idea uh, that, you know, letting Christ's word dwell within us richly is essential to life and to godliness, and then we looked at the means by which we do so. <clears throat> Obviously, if we're going to have the word of Christ richly dwelling in us, we got to read it. Uh, and I said last week, I'm like, I'm not going to tell you how often, I'm not going to tell you for how long or how much, just you, gotta, you have to read it. Um, we have to gently teach and admonish one another using God's word, and then um, the third way that he mentions we can let it dwell in us richly is through the singing of the gospel. <clears throat> and I'm one of these people, Christians, that believes that to, to, for the gospel to have its full effect, you have to sing it. Um, you can read it and, and be edified. You can, you can speak it like I'm doing right now and uh, be encouraged and strengthened and instructed. But until you sing it, uh, you're missing a piece of the package. Um, and, and, <clears throat> and then if you sing the gospel and it, it, it fully impacts you, what you'll start to see, so you're reading it, you're, you're teaching it to one another and having it taught to you and you're singing it. What you'll start to see is that the whole package, I shouldn't say it like this, the whole tapestry, oh, that's so much more poetic. The whole tapestry of Christianity is woven inseparably with the irrevocable truth that everything we possess and enjoy, we enjoy in Christ and we enjoy and possess because God graciously gives it to us. That was a lot of words. Basically, what I said is the more that you experience having the word of Christ richly dwell in you, the more gratitude will flow from your heart towards your Father in heaven. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 3.24 says we're justified, we are justified, declared righteous as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 11.6, Paul says it, it, <clears throat> if it's by grace that we're justified, then it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace wouldn't be grace. So what we have, what we enjoy in the person and work of Jesus Christ is all of Yeah, that's it. Second uh, Timothy 1, 8 and 9, the lesser known of the grace passages says, don't be ashamed, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God who called us and saved us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So a Christian, at the end of the day, a Christian is someone who realizes that the kindness of God led them to repent, 
turn away from sin. The sacrifice of Christ made the way for us to have access to God by dealing with our guilt. And the Holy Spirit now works to keep us walking in obedience. So God's the initiator. He is the supplier. He is the sustainer of our lives in Jesus Christ. And he promises, I'm never going to quit. I'm never going to give up. I'm going to finish the work that I started in you. And, And the fact that we can be in relationship with the one who made us, that our sins have been freely and fully dealt with if we are believers in Jesus Christ. And we have these great and precious promises of eternal life waiting for us after we finish this life. These things should ignite in the heart of the believer a flame of gratitude that burns forever. It doesn't mean we don't have moments of ingratitude and moments of falling back into remaining corruption. But by and large, your life should be increasingly marked with the, the, the resonant frequency of thankfulness to God. Do you want to know what sanctification looks like? It looks like that. You learn to thank God eventually, even for the hard days. Because uh, like Spurgeon kind of said, I've learned to be thankful for the wave which throws me against the rock of ages. Even the bad days are something you, be, you can be grateful for. So, <clears throat> so listen to this. My desire to seek Christ through prayer, Colossians 3, 1. My desire to set my mind on good things, on, on holy things, on God-honoring things, God-honoring things, Colossians 3, 2. My desire to put away what remains of sin in me, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. My desire to demonstrate kindness and compassion to those around me, Colossians 3, uh, 12 through 15. And then my desire to study my Bible, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, worship with people of God, with the people of God on Sunday, Colossians 3, 16 and 17. None of these things are first and foremost works that I do. They are expressions of that gratitude that every Christian has in their heart. So all of these do's and do nots that we talk about through the, throughout the scripture don't get the cart before the horse. Don't put these things out of their proper order. You will do these things to whatever degree you are grateful for the, the goodness of God in salvation. By contrast, a lack of willingness to put away sin, a lack of a desire to be compassionate to those around me, a lack of interest in reading your Bible, a lack of interest in worshiping with the people of God. These are in indications of a lack of gratitude. So, so like people who call themselves Christians and then behave like heathens because they don't understand the gospel. If, you, if, it, if it needs to be somebody else, if you need to get somebody else in your mind that does this, uh, that's fine, but just be aware you do it too. So whoever you get in mind, that's just you looking in a mirror, but it just physically doesn't look like you, okay? Christians, people that say, I'm a Christian, and then behave as though they're not with regularity, do that because they don't really understand the gospel, Period. And I know, I know, 
we're like, yes, I do. Well, that's worse. If you actually do and you're like, eh, forget it. I'm going to go live like an idiot. I'm giving you an out. I'm saying when you do that, there, something has become so compartmentalized in your head and in your heart that you have failed to apply the gospel to your decision making, which means you're, you've started making decisions out of selfishness rather than out of gratitude. So you, you act like a, an unconverted fool. Gospel literacy always leads to gospel obedience, not because of fear. It's not because of fear. Gospel literacy is what? Well, here's the good news. Well, what difference does the good news make? Well, here's the bad news. Now you see how the good news penetrates the darkness created by the bad news. There is hope for humanity in spite of our wretched persistence in things that are evil. And look at me. You're not alone in that. That your heart falters from these peaks of gracious... uh, a wonderful, life-changing obedience to God, that your heart falls from those peaks and you go into breathtaking evil within like a six or seven day span, you're not alone in that. And I'm not saying, and it's okay, it's great, God doesn't mind it. What I am saying is, it isn't fear that will get your heart back up to that place. It is when you recognize that the Lord Jesus has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. And he's promised that he who begins a good work will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ's advent, his return, his glorification forever. You begin to see, oh, my salvation is inseparably linked to God's glory. And if I'm not saved by grace through faith, then God's not going to be glorified. I can't stay in the mire. I have to get up and get out of it because I'm so full of gratitude for all that he's done for me. It's thankfulness that drives obedience. So what should we do when we encounter disobedience, disunity, or disorder among the supposed people of God? I mean, what should we do when the church doesn't behave like the church should behave. If gratitude and thankfulness are indications, and I believe that they are, if gratitude and thankfulness, I'm going to say this three times, if gratitude and thankfulness are indications of gratefulness, uh, if gratefulness is always indicative of gospel understanding, then ingratitude and disobedience are always indications of gospel misunderstanding or illiteracy. If gratitude and obedience point to gospel understanding, disobedience points to confusion and a lack of understanding of the gospel. If that's the case, then the church will have members which reflect the biblical expectation. If what I just said is true, I like leaning over and pointing at you. If what I just said is true, then the church will have members who are obedient and whose lives are consistent with what God has prescribed to whatever degree they're being taught the gospel. That's why it always kind of like alarms me when I hear pastors regularly complaining about how badly behaved their churches are. Like I'd be real careful whinging about how bad my church is because at some level it's on the guy who stands up and talks every Sunday. 
And so the more frustrated I am with you, the more I better be looking at the way that I'm communicating these gospel truths and the way that I'm encouraging you in gospel fluency. Because the problem isn't that you're just stubborn and rebellious. That might be part of it. The problem is you've not been taught correctly to apprehend and comprehend the doctrines of grace. So I got to ask, am I teaching the gospel or am I teaching something else when I get frustrated with the church? So my exhortation last week brilliantly (laughs) was that we be a church that makes every effort to be filled with gratitude. And then that takes so much pressure off of me and takes so much pressure off of you if we embrace and understand that Look, you'll be obedient to whatever degree you appreciate the kindness and goodness and grace of God in your life. Struggling to obey? Get a better grip on how much you have to be grateful for. Struggling to do that? Go serve someone else. Some of you are like, I think I remember him saying that back in James. Anyway, moving on, because it's now 1031. I'm going to need you all to remember (laughs) what I always resort to when we get into like a culturally dicey subject. I can't say everything in one sermon. Okay? Deal? Uh, You'll get more next week. Buckle up, ladies. Colossians (laughs) 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. <clears throat> I was joking with Lisa this morning. I usually get up before her and so then I'm kind of heading the direction of getting dressed or I'm already dressed by the time we see each other. So I was kind of gathering stuff up to walk out the door. And I said, I can't wait to get to church and put all these women in their place. Two things I want to get through today. (laughs) I mean, just lean into it, right? Uh, Two things I want to get through today. Number one, who is this addressed to? And number two, what is the biblical view of women? (laughs) Colossians 3.18. Is it still up? Yeah. Who's that addressed to? No, it just says, what's the first word? All right, good. Just making sure we know, period. Wives. We have other texts that address like children, girls, young women, and we'll see one in a future sermon on verse 20. Um, And spare me the linguistics lesson about how the original Greek word here is often translated as women uh, rather than wives. Contextually, it is patently obvious that this is directed at wives. The very next verse proves it. Uh, The Bible nowhere, listen, (laughs) the Bible nowhere commands all women to submit to all men. I defy you to find where it does. It does command wives to submit to their husbands. This verse is addressed to wives. So should you tune out if you're not one? No, because the second thing I said I was going to address is what is the biblical view of women? 
which is much broader. <laughs> I just want you to know the submission piece in Colossians 3.18 is limited. It is not women submit to men. It's wives submit to your husbands. And part of the reason that it's limited is to prevent you from having to submit to all men. But we'll get into that in a little bit here. What's the biblical view of women? The biblical view is that God created man and that from man he created a woman. Genesis 1.26, let's all go there. Genesis 1.26, I know you already know it, but it'll be good to review it. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image <clears throat> after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And then just jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 18, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him or fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So, God is anthropomorphically, which means <clears throat> we assign human characteristics to God so that we can better comprehend him. Or describe him. God is anthropomorphically described here in finite terms. Uh, what we see is that God realizes that man needs help. But it's, this is language used to help us just comprehend God. God was not surprised at the deficiency of man after he got done making him. God wasn't like, oh man, I blew it. We got to add something to the equation. But he's described that way so that we can be helped to understand more as we go along here. All right. So God brings all the animals to the man. <clears throat> and uh, each one is evaluated. Each one is named. And then each one is cut loose to go do whatever is in its nature. No helper suitable is found for man. So God creates another creature based on the man and similar to the man, but ultimately different. What does that tell us right off the bat? We can already ascertain two things. Women are just as incredible, just as unique in creation as men are relative to all other living things. Women are not second-class creatures made as an afterthought. A careful search was made, right? Right? We all saw it. 
the dog did not pass muster as a suitable helper for man. Neither did, like, put, insert your favorite animal here. Uh, when no suitable helper was found for man, God made one perfectly suited to that role also in his image, in the image of God. That means that women do not get their dignity from men. You get your dignity from God just like men. Second, women are specifically designed to complement the way men are designed. That means that both men and women possess the same dignity, worthiness, and value as image bearers of God. And I would just point out, especially to my more chauvinistic, <clears throat> like extreme complementarian preaching brothers out there, that, that women get more detail in the account of their creation than the men do. Uh, and I would point out that man, like all living things, was created from the dirt, whereas women were created from flesh and bone, which might speak to our cleanliness habits <laughs> relative to each gender. I happen to believe that it's an important observation because it's another thing that makes you all unique. Um, but woman was designed to do things which a man was not designed to do. Are we all? Okay, great. So that's the first part of the biblical view of women. Women and men are created with equal dignity, worthiness, and value in the sight of God, but different. Second, <clears throat> the reason for which women was created was that man needed a helper. So Genesis 2.18 says, <clears throat> the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The first thing that's mentioned in all of scripture as being not good is the lack of company for a man. Um, quick question. Why do you think the narrative is disrupted this way? Don't answer it out loud. Just think about it for a second. Why would God choose to portray his creation as in any way insufficient? Because it is God that says it. Everything else is good. God said, let there be light. There was, it was good. He said, let there be sky. There was, it was good. He said, let there be land. There was, it was good. He said, let there be sea. The waters were gathered. It was good. He said, let there be plants. There were, they were good. He said, let there be fish and let there be animals. And there were, and it was good. Before that, he actually said, let there be sun and stars. And it was, and, and, and that was good. Like everything was good. And then he said, let there be man. And it was good too, but... Something needed to be added. Something needed to be done. Maybe, maybe the creation narrative is presented this way so that we can appreciate how incredibly, how deliberately, how perfectly women were designed. Perhaps God chose to stop and note Man was created incapable of filling his design without a helper so that we might be induced to appreciate the helper that God supplies. Amazing that men who, like, go to seminary to learn to do this. 
blow right past the fact that God said, I made this, it was good. I made that, it was good. I made that, it was good. I made this, it was good. I made that, it was good. And then they get to, and then God created man and it was good. And then he created woman because, you know, we needed someone to serve us or whatever it is that they think. Brothers, he stops the creation narrative, goes, wait a minute, this is insufficient. Let me do something especially for this, to complete this piece right here. We ought to, like, that should elevate the way that we view the creation and role of women in every man's mind. But we're men, so we're like, we're first. Um, so, women, women are created for this specific purpose, uh, here we go, uh, created to be a helper, right? Which suggests a general role, but not a general limitation. Do you understand what I mean by that? So, so think about it like this. It's not as though without a man to help, y'all don't have any purpose. It's the general role, but it's not the only one. And the only way that you can glorify God really is when you're helping a man. Not, not the case. They were inarguably designed with that in God's mind, though, which means you're specially, you're, you're specially talented at things men just aren't talented at. And here I would point out that some, again, veer into an error. That woman was created as a helper is drastically different than women were created as decorations. Drastically different. And, um, I mean, nowhere does God say that, but neither does he say anywhere that like demure and subservient and inferior are the adjectives that, that he wants to use to describe women. It's not anywhere in scripture. So if you've been given this idea that this is how the Bible views women, you've been given that idea by a false teacher. And I defy you to go back it up with what's in here. You won't find it. In all of history, <clears throat> when women descend into like merely decorative status are overvalued for their physical appearance and used as accessories, the culture responsible is, is I mean, often annihilated as a result. And I'm not saying it's the cause is, is that women aren't treated well. I'm saying it's a feature of a culture headed for total destruction when women are treated as objects rather than as image bearers of God. I mean, apply that however you want. But somehow with fourth wave feminism, we've gotten to the point where uh, the more a woman sexualizes herself, uh, the more like somehow she's free empowered. I don't even get it. I can't figure out how that even works. But I've heard it a number of times. Oh, she's a, a bad you know what, right? Because why? Because she doesn't wear clothing? She's empowered as what? Other than a sexual object at that point. And so you look at the culture and you go, how do we view women? 
there's, there's two options. There's image bearer of God created uniquely as a suitable helper, complement to man, and put into a relationship with him wherein they complement and help one another, glorify God, or she's an object. And the more an object she is, the badder she is. We are doomed, folks. We're doomed. Enough of that. Sound like an old man. You look like one too. <clears throat> the last place we should expect to see women treated like second class citizens is in the church. Woe to the church that doesn't properly value women. Let's keep going and see what is said in scripture. Actually, let me let me review quickly since Naomi wants to chime in. <laughs> God created men and don't you don't have to leave. I'll I'll hold her if you want. God created men and women with equal dignity, worthiness, and value. Amen? Okay. One is not superior to the other. Men are not superior to women. Women are not superior to men. Amen? And a women. <laughs> Sorry, when that guy did that, I was like, you ding dong. Yep. This means uh, women are beautifully designed to supply what men in their design lack. I like saying it that way. Uh, there will be some things men just are not adept at and some things women are not adept at. The value of a man and the value of a woman is derived from the fact that they are created in the image of God, not the variance in our design and the corresponding variance in our roles and responsibilities. Where does your value come from, ladies? The fact that you were made in the image of God, period. That's it. Where does my value come from as a man? The fact that I was created in the image of God, period. That's it. What I do with that does not add to or subtract from the, the fundamental value that every created man and woman has because we are image bearers. Third, and this is where I've got to leave off, right? The biblical view of women. There's so much more that could be said, but... <clears throat> time, right? We need a proof text from 1 Corinthians 11, so turn there. And then, uh, shoot, I should have told you to turn back to Philippians 2 first. So you're going to want to finger in both, Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. So if you can manage that, <clears throat> Excuse me, we'll do a little bit of flipping back and forth. Uh, 1 Corinthians eleven three says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Like, I have to take a little bit of time to address the passage verse by verse. So let me pause here before we go any further and just say, like, much of what's here is not related to the point that I'm trying to make. So when we get into head coverings and haircuts, like, just, like, not why we're here. The head of every man is Christ. Do you see that? 1 Corinthians eleven three. 
I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. That means every man answers to Jesus. Understood? The head of a wife is her husband means every wife answers to her husband. Understood? The head of Christ is God means Jesus answers to God. Understood? Now, if you take that as absolute, what you will do is create a Trinitarian heresy. Because Jesus does not answer to God in the essence of the relationship between the Godhead. Remember, we've already seen that the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form in the person Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity. Jesus is God, albeit limited by human flesh. So there's no, there's no innate general hierarchy in, in the Trinity. It's not spirit, then Jesus, then God, and that's the authority structure. No, no, no. They are equals. You hear me? So important. So keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, but flip ahead to Philippians 2 and look at verse 5. But we are, remember, we're coming back to 1 Corinthians 11. I should have told you. Just keep, keep them both. Have this mind among yourselves. This is Philippians 2.5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What that is telling you is that Jesus let go of status, refused to cling to glory, Choosing instead to become limited, he took the role of submission to God the Father in order to accomplish redemption for sinners. That's what that text is telling you. So Jesus willingly limited him, himself for the purpose of saving humanity from sin. He voluntarily yielded himself to the Father's authority and became obedient to the point of death. Wives, this is your example. You are called to willingly limit yourselves for the purpose of glorifying God. You are called to yield yourself to your husband's authority. That yielding, that limiting of yourself does not diminish your value any more than it diminished Jesus's. But it certainly suggests you should be discriminating about who you marry. When I see Christian girls chasing after guys that in no way fit the biblical criteria for a husband, I think, oh, so you're just not going to do Colossians 3.18. And just, you're just going to kind of see how that goes. Because you can't, in so many ways, you cannot yield to a man who does not fear God. Again, I would point out that Colossians 3.18 does not say women submit yourselves to men. 
it says wives. So go back to 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies... <laughs> Oh my gosh. Prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not cover his head since he's the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from women, but women from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So two explanations, and then we'll, we'll, like, we'll hone in on verse 7. Please, please, for the purposes of getting through the morning uh, and, and, and not being here until Tuesday, ignore all the business about head covering. We don't have time. I suspect a lot of it uh, has cultural implications, and we can't say with certainty uh, what Paul is addressing, other than maybe there were ladies trying to dress and appear and act like men. I don't know. Can't imagine what that would look like anyway, right? Looking at verses 8 and 9, he says, this is the second thing I want to explain quickly. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Dislike it if you want. Uh, Paul is rehearsing a fact of the Genesis creation account. God did not create woman and then man as her helper. It was the other way around. You can kick against the constraints of the creative order. You can reject Christianity because some of us actually believe these things. You can march on Washington and get the Bible outlawed. You can tweet about how the pastor of Springfield Baptist Church is a misogynist. You can destroy my life and call me names. You can, you know, like whatever you want to do. Get me fired from my job so that you don't have to hear this. But the fact remains all reasonable people for all of history have recognized we are not the same. And equal means the same. Men and women are equal. No, we are not. We're not the same. Do we, did I not say, we have the same dignity, worth, and value? Yeah, but we're not the same. We're not equal, and to prove it, generally speaking, generally speaking, a woman cannot overpower a man. All things being equal, go find the strongest woman and the weakest man, okay, you win. Generally speaking, a woman cannot overpower a man. You have to get another man to do that for you. Why do they march for women's rights? Just do whatever you want if we're equal. Oh, because we have to give you those rights. You have to make sure you're given those rights by getting other men to threaten the men that won't give you those rights to give you those rights. We're not the same. We're not equal. If you go find a man that I'm also not equal to to make me do what you want me to do, you're just going to prove my point. We're not equal. We're not the same. So all the indignation that you feel about the fact of women being created for men, according to the scriptures, is not. That indignation is not because sometimes men are reprehensibly evil and wicked and beat their wives. 
That indignation you feel is not because men are disgusting. That indignation you feel is not because men are selfish. That indignation you feel is not because men are brutal and horrifying. Now, the indignation is not helped by those facts, but the indignation is not first caused by those facts about men. The reason you feel that indignation and recoil to this idea is because women, like men, albeit for different specific reasons, exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's why you feel that way. And what I would suggest to you is that perhaps you will find rest in considering that God actually knows what makes for human flourishing. Perhaps you'd find more satisfaction in yielding to the one who made you the way he made you rather than pretending things are other than what they are. And that's what our culture is doing. Playing make-believe. Besides, look at verse 7. A man not ought Sorry, a man ought not cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Oh, and I know, I read that the first time and some of you were like, but you said that they get that guy from image bearer. You think you caught Paul and me in a trap and you're wrong. Listen. A man shouldn't cover his head. Why? He's the... He's the image and glory of God. So let me rephrase that. If man is the crown of creation, which is what your Bible is saying, then woman is the crown of the crown. If man is the glory of God, which means that humanity, like rightly expressed, taking away sin and the fall and all that we've ruined, if humanity is the ultimate expression of God's glory in creation, then what is a woman? If a man is the ultimate expression of the glory of God in creation, then what is a woman? She is the glory of the glory. So flip back to Philippians 2. If I were a 15, 16-year-old boy and I heard this sermon and didn't pay attention and then 10 years later found myself a 25, 26-year-old young man married and didn't know all of the things that are currently being said about the difference between men or women, then I would be a 25 or 26-year-old man who has no idea how to treat my wife which is pretty much what I was. So if you're 15, 16, 17 years old and you're not listening to this message, then all I can do is warn you that you are headed for a world of heartache and that men, because they don't understand these things, do irreparable harm to the women that they choose to love and the families that they're trying to start. There might not be anything more important for a young man to know than these things other than the gospel. I bless God that he chose graciously 
to overrule the bad husbandry that I engaged in for the first decade that I was married. I don't deserve to be married any more than anybody else. If, if, if whether or not you deserve to be married is based on your conduct as a spouse. Philippians 2.8 says Jesus being found in human form humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven and on, on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So earlier I said Jesus is your example. That's true for men. That's true for women. But specifically, like I'm carving out a place for you to be appreciated here, ladies. Jesus is your example in that wives are called to willingly yield themselves to their husbands as Jesus willingly yielded himself to God. And what was the outcome of Jesus for Jesus doing that? He gave him the name that is above every other name. Right? Didn't Jesus at the end of the day get more glory for his act of humble subservience to God the Father? Isn't that what happened? That, that, that does not mean that he became more decorative. It means he became more valuable. He became more valuable. And what that suggests to me is that contrary to the human instinct to demand glory, if you will humbly yield yourself to God's design and fill the role you've been called by him to fill, that is where you'll find your greatest contentedness. It's also where we find the greatest blessing and pleasure we are always most satisfied when God is most glorified. Amen? And God is always most glorified when we are doing what he designed us to do. If the Bible is to be believed, then wives should submit, which means voluntarily, reflexively be subordinate to their husbands. The outcome will be her usefulness to God, her value to her family, and her satisfaction in life are all enhanced. We haven't in any way addressed what this does not mean, but as you can see, we are out of time. So more to come next week.